Now, if you would uh, open your Bibles, uh, follow along as I read our psalm for this evening is Psalm 56. This psalm is, uh, I consider it a parallel or pair with Psalm 34 because they both have the same uh, setting of historical background. So Psalm 56, to the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands, a michtam of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words, and their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity? In anger cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know, because God is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? God bless the reading of his word, and now let's uh, look at this passage together. I chose this passage, verse 56, mainly because it is the parallel or pair um, to Psalm 34, which we covered last week. Um, they both deal with the same historical setting, but from different perspectives. But as this week progressed and toward the end of the week, and this uh, tragedy has been unfolding in the Ukraine my heart's been deeply grieved and concerned, and the more I read the psalm and thought about it, I thought, I think if I were in the Ukraine, I'd be looking to the psalm. Uh, it, it's a psalm that's appropriate for our brothers and sisters over there as they're experiencing this uh, merciless, brutal, unjust attack from Russia, a much stronger force. And so here they're facing um, overwhelming force against them from all sides um, as, the, as the battle has... Uh, Developed, It has come from north and east and south. Uh, again, from overwhelming force and power. And so you can imagine that someone who is there, this would be a perfect psalm of prayer for the saints who are in that difficult circumstance. Again, as I study for these, you know, I read various, of course I read the text and read it through in the Hebrew and um, read commentaries and listen to sermons. I was listening to a sermon by Derek Thomas. We've heard some of his teaching at times. Uh, he called, the title for the sermon, he called the Crazy Time Psalm. Because you remember David acted as if he were crazy. Um, and he commented that he, there was no mention of prayer in, the, um, in Samuel, in the, in the description of the historical background of David's flight to Gath. 
I thought that's a good point. Now, in Psalm 34, he, it mentions he cries out, but maybe too late. So I was thinking that is a, a, a missing, a major missing element in, in, in what Samuel records of, of the event. Just he went, remember, I need the bread, I need the sword. But then it occurred to me there's an interesting detail that Samuel mentions that um, gives some perspective on that. In 1 Samuel 21, 9, 21, 9 we, we covered chapter 1 Samuel 21 last time, but you might remember, might not. In verse 21, 9, it said, so after he came and said, you know, do you have any bread? Well, you have the bread of the uh, show, showbread table. Um, we could, you know, we have to, we've tra- traded it out. And so if, if everyone is, you know, he's, David was acting like he had a team of soldiers just off in the distance. He was all alone. Anyway, he gave him the bread. And he said, do you have a sword around here? In verse 9, the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. I wonder if, if David had forgotten that he killed Goliath. <laughs> but in other words, you have a history with the sword. There it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. So David was thinking ahead. He needs bread. He needs a sword. He's go, you know, these are dangerous times. Dangerous men are hunting for him. And there is that sword behind the ephod. The ephod. You know, that's the priestly garment. But it has a special function at times. It was that's the they put the urim and the thummim in the ephod. And with that, you they could seek God's direction. You would ask questions and God could answer. And there's we're not told how that worked out, uh, whether they, they would pull out a stone and it would be yes or no. I think there's a Hebrew a rabbinic tradition that uh, a light would come and light up the different uh, stones on the, on the priest's uh, chest piece, and that would spell out words. I'm not sure how the, how the answers came. But the, the ephod shows up later in, in David's experience in 1 Samuel chapter 30. So that's after the Gath experience, 1 Samuel 30, verses 7 and 8. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son. Ahimelech was the one who gave him the bread and knife and eventually died for that. Please bring the ephod here to me, he said to the priest. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, God answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. So as David was trying to decide, should we go into battle, he sought the ephod to get direction and guidance. Where was the sword? Right behind the ephod. The ephod. God's designed instrument for seeking God's direction. And what happened? He pushed that aside and grabbed the sword. So that's just a detail I kind of missed until I thought and rethought about that ephod. I, I think that was a providential nudge from God. You know, you know, you're going to need bread, you're going to need a sword, but have you prayed yet? Have you asked God's direction before this? <laughs> you start heading off into Philistine territory? And I think that's kind of a, um, a rebuke to many of us that the first thing we're thinking about, what's our plan of action? What are we going to do? And um, where's the sword? Where's the bread? And maybe what we should be saying is, how can I pray? And so 
he pushed aside the ephod to grab the sword. And, there's, and, and as Derek Thomas said, there's, there's no mention of a prayer anywhere in that context. So that brings us to David. We're told that this is a, 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 it's a, a psalm to the chief musician. Set to the silent dove in distant lands. Lois, I wonder if you would play that tune for us. Uh, you know, so that, this is apparently the name of a tune. And uh, we're told it's a miktam of David. It's a, a, a psalm when the Philistines captured him in Gath. So it's entitled, Not All Psalms Are. And, and in it we get the historical background. He, he tells us it's for the, um, for the music director. And so we know it was meant for public singing. And this is something we're supposed to benefit from this psalm as, as they sang and meditated on these words. Um, he also mentions this, this tune. That's what I, we would understand. He calls the tune the silent dove in distant lands. And I know different translations render that differently. Um, James Montgomery Boyce mentions, he says this, the reference to a dove makes us think back to Psalm 55, the previous psalm, in which David cried, oh, that I had the wings of a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. That's a good thought to think about that. So notice when he's saying the tune is the, uh, the silent dove in distant lands. Doves represent peace, don't they? And, and you wonder if you know, the picture of a silent dove in a distant land is away from harm, away from threats, and at peace. And so probably a peaceful psalm. And boy, how David would have wanted to be a dove who could fly away and be in a distant land. So perhaps that's just, that's hypothetical. So uh, like Psalm 34, which we discussed last week, this psalm you know, connects us with the incident with David had, was, was being chased by Saul, falsely accused. Um, and so he, he took off and, and he, um, he went to Gath, to the Philistines. This is the prayer, I think, in many, uh, that he prayed while he was there in Gath. And you might wonder, wait a minute, Psalm 34, which comes earlier, and as we, we ta- taught it earlier, that's the celebration of deliverance. Psalm 56 is the prayer for deliverance. Logically, you would put them in different order. But sometimes that's a helpful way to hear a story. Let me tell you a wonderful thing God has done. The deliverance. And then let me fill you in on some of the details. And so it seems like this is God's order of how we should consider them. And so we start with the joy of deliverance, chapter 34, and now we come to the prayer for deliverance. Well, we begin then with uh, this section, verses 56, verses 1 to 4. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And God, I will praise his word. And God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? So his first prayer is a prayer for grace. Um, this word, that the word when it's my translation says, be merciful, it's literally be gracious to me. Show me grace, Lord. Of course, mercy and grace can, uh, you know, could go together, but mercy is a part of grace. Grace is, God, do for me what I don't deserve. 
And then he, he says the man is chasing him down, harassing him. Now, the word for swallow has the idea of panting after him, chasing him down. You know, So you get the idea of they're hunting him down. They're out of breath because they're chasing him, and he's out of breath. And he's just feeling he's hunted. And that word for fight, they're fighting all day long. That's the word from which we develop, from which comes the word for war. So they're chasing me. They're hunting me. They're at war with me. And he goes on to say that man oppresses him and that he, they hound him all day long. Again, as I last night was thinking through the psalm again, and, and, and it, I, was, I was struck by how that psalm would be appropriate, those words and those thoughts would be appropriate for our brethren in Ukraine. Hounded, hunted, um, overwhelmingly chased down. There's this aggressive enemy hunting them down. Derek Kidner, one of the, uh, uh, a very helpful commentary, commentator, he suggests that David went to the king of Gath out of a sense of desperation. You think about it. Why else would a Philistine killer run to the Philistines? I mean, it's like there are no options left. Where can, I can't stay in Israel. They'll hunt me down. Where am I going to go? And, um, and one way he might be thinking is, well, the Philistines are our enemies. They're not going to chase me into enemy land, in territory. Um, but that still puts him in enemy territory. But so in other words, this shows you he was desperate. He, his, his options were gone. Though again, we don't see the word prayer in there until, until he's really in a, in, in, in a deep ditch. Um, how, how different the story might have been if when God nudged with that, the sword behind the ephod, if he hadn't said, what am I thinking? Priest, thank you for the sword. Now go back and get that ephod. Let's ask the Lord what I should do. But here he is in active desperation. He flees to Gath. Uh, maybe thinking again that uh, he would be welcomed. Since you're an enemy of Saul, you're our friend. But again, there's the irony. Carrying Goliath's sword. Not, not a good strategy. Um, and so he says, these, these, he says he's being har- harassed, hounded, hunted. Who's doing that? Well, it could be speaking of Saul's forces. I mean, as he left, I mean, you can imagine Saul, Saul you know, hunting him. Hunt him down. Get him. Find him. I want him. I want him here or I want him dead. That could be Saul's forces. It could also describe the Philistine forces. Can you imagine the outrage and, and how, it, how the crowd must have gra- slowly swelled as, who's that new in town? Hey, that's a Philistine sword. That, that, that's Goliath's sword. That's David. No, yes. Can you, and so can you imagine how they, they came after him like a mob? Mobs can be a scary thing. And so they came as an armed, dangerous, furious mob. They had been in battle against him. Remember, he'd killed his thousands. It's like a pack of wild dogs. They must have harassed him, threatened him. You know, and then they came to the king and, 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 and said, what an opportunity. We have an enemy, a hated enemy in our hands. Can you think of another time when a, a hated enemy of the Philistines was in their hands?
Samson. Remember that? They captured him. Long story, won't get into it. But here was another a champion of Israel, a killer of Philistines. And here is, and what was their attitude towards Samson? They were going to abuse him. They were going to use him for their entertainment. Uh, they were going to make his life miserable. And so that was Samson took an act of desperation. And so I think that's the normal expectation of how David would have expected to be handled. But God. So David closes verse 2. Notice how he closes it. He closes his prayer of desperation. So what does he say? He says, be merciful or be gracious to me, O God. Man would swallow me up. My enemies would hound me all day. There are many who fight against me. Almost high. Almost high. Exalted one. Oh, the mob is around me. I'm surrounded by dangerous, treacherous, hurtful, vicious men. But you're the most high God. You're above all. You're the exalted one. And so he moves, and that sets the stage for where he's going. He moves from describing the situation to describing his trust in the Lord. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? God is the most high, and so David trusts him. So these next two verses speak with great emotion as he's describing his trust in the Lord. And you can see the emotion when he says, whenever I'm afraid, I'll trust you. In God, I will praise his word. You know, he's interrupting himself. In God, I put my trust. That just, you can just hear the emotion. In, oh, God, you're almost high. In God, I'm trusting. In his fear, he's lifting his heart to the Lord. He looks to the Lord and he trusts in him. What do you mean he trusts in him? He knows he's the most high God. He's overall, he's powerful. But he, he says, in God, I will praise his word. In God, I put my trust. I will praise his word. That's God's word that, that reflect, tells us who God is and it has the promises of God in there. Now, he may also, you know, thinking of the Bible that's been already given, the Torah, the, the books of Moses, uh, maybe Joshua are, are there. Maybe he has those books um, to remind him of God's uh, power and his mercy and his grace. Maybe he's thinking about the word that came from Samuel. God says, you're the next king. In fact, I will anoint you uh, now. Before you're even king. But he, what he says is, in God, I will praise his word. God had revealed himself, his character, his promises in his word. Hint to us. In times of fear, in times of grief, God's word. I will trust him because I'm in his word. A Bible-less Christian is a trust-less Christian. A Christian who isn't delving into the Bible that time is like a David who pushes aside the ephod and say, we don't have time for prayer, we have time for action. And really it should be, we don't have time for action until we pray. Pray first, then act. 
And so David is here saying, I will trust him. I will praise his word because that's how I know who he is. And I know how much he cares. I know his character. I know his promises. I know his existence. And so he lifts his heart to God and he says, I will praise his word. I will put in God I have put my trust. I put my trust in him already. By the way, in verse 3, when he says, whenever I am afraid or when I am afraid, literally, and some of your translations may say this, in the day that I am afraid, you know, that, that makes it very, you know, uh, not, but that kind of makes it graphic. In that moment, when I am afraid, not you know, whenever I'm afraid, in the d- very day I'm afraid, that's when I'm going to trust him. In our emotion, fear and trust really battle against each other. And so as David's saying, when, when my fears are, are hammering me, like the hounds that are chasing these men, that's the time when I will trust. How can I do that? I will praise his word. Delving into his word. Lord, remind me of your character. And so let me suggest to you, in a time of fear and calamity, Psalm 56. Psalm 56. To remind you of of how to pray in a time of calamity. And so again, I think of our Ukrainian friends and family, I should say, and remind us, pray, think of God's word. David knows from God's word that he's the most high. From God's word, he's greater than man. In God I put my trust, I will not fear what can flesh do to me. Flesh emphasizing the, this is just a man. A man has very limited, he can only be in one place at a time. He has limited strength, he has limited knowledge. God is everywhere. He has unlimited strength, unlimited knowledge, unlimited wisdom. It's kind of like what David thought when he went to face Goliath. Everyone said, you can't face that giant. Basically, his answer was, I'm not going to. God's going to do it. This giant is challenging God. I'm just going to go and deliver God's message by airmail. I'll have to think about that, maybe tomorrow. But, but the whole point was, his, he saw that, that giant that everyone else was terrified because they looked at his flesh. And David said, he's only flesh. This is a battle of flesh versus God. That always ends with God winning. And so that's David's spirit here. He goes on then to describe the enemies that harass him in verses 5 to 7. All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. Saul must have twisted David's word. I know he's plotting to take the kingship from me. I know he's doing this. I know he's doing that. And that must have hurt because David was the most loyal soldier and servant Saul had. The Philistines must have twisted his words. Have you heard how how he sings back in Israel about I've killed my, my thousands? David didn't sing that song. You know what I mean? They would have twisted and twisted and twisted and misrepresented him, quoting him, 
for what he didn't say. And, and just, they twist my words. I was talking, a, a political candidate came to my door this afternoon. And, and one of the things he talked about, he, 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 he knew it would be hard, but he didn't know how hard it would be. And in the political realm, there's a lot of twisting of the words. Have you ever noticed that? And how we need to have our, our filter on that untwists and, and looks for the other side. I think, too, of the whole Ukraine situation again. Um, Mr. Putin has been doing a lot of word twisting. How he has twisted the situation. Um, Europe, America, and uh, Ukraine have attacked Russia. You know, he came in to protect the... Uh, the uh, separatists who were being attacked. Uh, early on, we were to- being told there's going to be a false flag. Where, that's where they go and, and, and make it look, you know, send in people to make it look like the Ukraine is attacking the Russians. Hitler did that in a famous incident that kind of opened the door, I think it was, to Poland. I won't go into all the details, but he went and got a bunch of people and put them in Polish uniforms um, and then attacked a German radio station and, and said, oh, it was a Polish soldiers. It was, it was all falsified to give him a, an excuse to attack. It's amazing to listen to, to Putin say these things that are so false and so phony. Evil people do that. They misrepresent. They twist. And that's hard if, if, if to hear yourself so lied against, misrepresented. It... Um, it's such a discouraging thing. And yet there it is. They twisted my words. All their thoughts are evil against me. They gather together. And so we see it's, there's, a, there's a, a conspiracy going on. Uh, um, they hide, they mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. And so, so again, just they're trying to entrap me. Together they're working against me. And, and so this kind of reminds me, this whole st- how they're plotting it shows, especially from the Saul side, just what bitterness will do. A bitter soul becomes a hateful soul. And it's constantly just meditating on, on their, their grievances with the other person. And all these hateful thoughts, they just kind of let it marinate in their mind and heart. May God deliver us from that. May God deliver us from a bitter soul that is constantly reflecting on offenses perceived or otherwise from the other person. And may God protect us from those who have that bitterness toward us. But that was David. They're gathering together. They hide. They mark my steps whenever they lie and wait for my life. Can we race forward and think of our Lord Jesus Christ? Plotting, twisting words, uh, plotting his, his, his murder. In verse 7, shall they escape by iniquity and anger cast down the peoples of God? So he, cries, he just cries here for God's justice. Will they get away with their sin ultimately? Ultimately? Oh God, cast down these sinful, wicked people. Bring judgment. So what he does though is he says, though he has Goliath's sword, and of course, he's maybe in chains, but at this point. But his whole point is, Lord, you're going to have to bring justice, and that reminds us of the important principle: God, it's God says, "Vengeance is mine." 
when we look around this world and see injustice, we can do our part to try and bring justice and preserve justice, but sometimes injustice happens. And we have to trust that God's going to make it right. And that's one of the glorious things of knowing God is in control. When we pray thy kingdom come, the king is coming. And he will set up court. Justice will prevail. The wicked will answer. But ultimate justice awaits the ultimate coming of the judge. But David gives it over to the Lord. Shall they escape? Lord, you cast them down, those peoples. Well, in the final section here in verses 8 to 13, he trusts in God's compassion and care. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling? That I may walk before God in the light of the living. So he's painted his enemies as terribly wicked, hunting them down. Now, if you will, he paints, he paints the Lord, the one to whom he's praying. He speaks of him as a, as a God of compassion. He says, he writes David's sorrows down in a book. Maybe some of you journal. And um, what do you journal? Well, sometimes it might be all kinds of things, but sometimes it's a, it's a journal is a place of pouring out your heart and, and maybe expressing your sorrows. And, and so in kind of a picture here is God uh, is taking account. Uh, the word book can relate to the word to number. And so that's a reminder if you journal to, to number things. No, but, but the idea that God is writing it down. He's aware. He cares. This is important to me. Have you ever maybe shared your heart with someone and you get the impression they're not even listening? They're not caring. And it's going right past them. God says, I'm listening. I care. I know. I'm writing it down. My sorrows are written in your book. He says... Um, Put my tears into your bottle. That's a strange expression. Put my tears in your bottle. Um, maybe on a Wednesday, I, I think I would have shown, I was going to show this on Wednesday, but again, things came up and all weather-wise. If you go to Jerusalem, a Mount of Olives, you can go to about halfway down. There's a path, the kind of a winding path you take. Over on your left is a Jewish cemetery. On your right are some you know, trees and such. And there's a little path off, and there's this little chapel called uh, Dominus Flevit, I think is how you would pronounce it. And um, that's a place of the Lord's tears. When Je- that, theoretically, uh, traditionally, that's where Jesus stopped, looked out, because that's a perfect place to look out over Jerusalem and the temple. And he wept for Jerusalem. He poured out tears of sorrow, and so the chapel is shaped like a tear. Well, if you look um, around, the, the, there's like these pillar corners, four corners of this 
vaulted uh, part of the chapel, and I'm looking at a picture of it now. Does that help? Okay. So you see the little red square? Can you see the iPad? <laughs> um, anyway, there's on the, these four corners, there are these long tubular items, tear bottles. In the ancient world, they had tear bottles. And, and typically, in a time of great grief, especially the loss of a loved one, as you wept your tears of sorrow, you would collect those tears. And it would be a, a lasting memorial to the one you loved and lost. And so it's a very personal way of saving a personal sorrow for a person and, and, and so he's saying, God, you put in your bottle, um, you put, in, put my tears in your bottle. Saying, God, hear my, hear, hear my sorrow. Bottle my tears. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if you could go somewhere in Israel and find bottles of David's tears that you could buy, guaranteed genuine. <laughs> but, 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 there's, but you see in that context... It, that was such a sacred way, if you will, uh, traditionally of, of expressing sorrow, to bottle the tears. And he's saying, God, you bottle my tears. You take note. You remember. This is one of the things about worshiping a God who is the only God, who is the infinite, the omniscient one. He, he's everywhere and all-knowing. Isn't that amazing? Well, in one place there are those who are overwhelmed with joy and blessing and, and gladness and in other parts of the world and other parts of the room there might be those who are weeping tears of sorrow God sees them all God cares for them all but so often in a time of sorrow we feel no one knows no one cares no one understands and so the picture if God is going to bottle our tears he knows he cares he understands, and it matters deeply to him. Our Lord, the infinite, the most high, cares deeply about our sorrows. And may, if God feels it's appropriate in his word to say he bottles our tears, some have even suggested, oh, you know, it's not faith to, to weep. David expresses his faith in his tears. Sorrow is genuine. God doesn't reject it as unbelief. He cares enough to bottle those tears. That's our father. That is our father. And so with that, he, he's saying, God, you see my tears. Care for me in my sorrow. And he does. When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. There's an expression of faith. I'll pray and you'll deliver. This I know because God is for me. Well, God won't always deliver us from our, our struggles, but David had that unusual promise. God said to him, you're the next king. And if David's the next king, God's going to keep him alive until he can be king. We, may, we are not promised to be king. But God has a purpose in our life, and he'll keep us alive until that purpose is completed. 
Sometimes that purpose is completed much earlier than we would have thought appropriate. But God's timetable is never surprised and never wrong. But David knows God will deliver him because God is for me. We can know. What's the worst they can do? Kill my body. What happens? I go to heaven. Who's the loser? (laughs) And so God is for us. And so he says then in verses 10 and 11, In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. You see again and again, this trust, this praise comes from God's word. If we're not in God's word, we're missing. We're missing this fountain of truth that will comfort our soul, that will guide our lives, that will strengthen us in our faith. God, I put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And so again, he's expressing just his confidence. What can man do to me? Boyce uh, commented, he can do a lot. (laughs) See, he gives a list, maim, kill, you know. Uh, Man can do a lot. But in an eternal, eternal perspective, remember Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can destroy the soul. And so David is expressing his God, his trust. God will answer his prayer. His trust in God's strength as a great warrior. David's not the. It's not David's strength. He's trusting in. It's not his sword or his military skills, but he's trusting in the Lord. His confidence is in the Lord being for him. And again, that's a, that's true of us. And, and as I was thinking of this passage, my mind just fled over to Romans chapter eight. Maybe yours has also. Verses 31 to 39. I'll just read a couple snippets from this great text. Verse 31. What, what then shall we say to these things, whatever they may be? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare, verse 32, he who did not spare his son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? So how do I know God's going to take care of me? He sent his son to the cross for me. Everything else is minor compared to that. Am I asking too much? He sent his son to the cross for you. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, none of that. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Verses 38 and 39. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. And you almost say like, you can almost see him stop and say, did I leave anything out? <laughs> Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's David's hope. If God has for me, what can man do to me? What's the worst he can do to me? God will care for me. Verse 12, vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. It was the pattern of worship back then in a time of, of, of great need that people would make a vow to the Lord. Lord, if you deliver me through this, then I will go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. And some might hear that and say, what are you trying to do? Buy God's protection? No. What it's saying is, God, I'm asking you to deliver me. And if you do, 
I will not be negligent about giving you the glory. As soon as I'm able to get to the temple, I will fulfill my vow. No, so you might say, I'm going to do this and that. And so, so they would then publicly go into the temple. I called out to the Lord. I was in this circumstance. He delivered me. And I'm bringing this offering before the altar so everyone would know God answers prayer. God cares for his people. And I'm fulfilling my vow. And so you see, that's what he's saying is, Lord, my vows upon me are binding. I will render praises to you. So he's saying, Lord, I'm calling out for your help and I'll meet you in the temple. This kind of reminds me of, you know, we always begin our prayer time in Sunday school with praise. That's when we can share uh, our praises to God. We can share our answers to prayer with one another. And, to, and give testimony to God's grace. That's encouraging to us in many ways. We pray for one another, and that's really wonderful to see how God answers that prayer. The grace he gives through times of sorrow, the strength he gives, the healings he gives, whatever it may be. And so David says, I will, I will be in the temple, giving you the glory. And then verse, he closes in verse 13, You have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the sight of the living? And so he, he closes his song, he sings this psalm, and he expresses his gratitude, you preserved me. And so as the nation would gather in the temple and sing, they would have thought of God's great mercy in David's life, their future king, their greatest of king, and they would, might have thought too of how God had preserved them as a nation. David speaks to us from a very difficult circumstance. He was all alone. He was all alone. Chased down by the king he had faithfully served. Separated from family, friends. Surrounded by those who hated him and took great delight in the thought of how horribly miserable he was going to be in their hands. But he knew God's word. And because he knew God's word, he knew God. He knew he could trust him. And so he said, in the, in the day of my fear, I will trust him. David messed up when he nudged the ephod aside and picked up the sword. And he's learned his lesson. In the day of my fear... I'll pray, and I'll trust. This psalm reminds us that sorrow, suffering, heartache is real in the Christian life. Illness and death, persecution, injustice is real in the Christian life. Ask Jesus. In the midst of such times, God is still the most high. He is still faithful to his promises. And whatever man can do to us, God is the mighty one who superintends man's actions, who oversees and overrules this world. And the best place we can be is in his hands and in his will. Father, we thank you for your word that tells us who you are. And we pray, Lord, for one another. Lord, may we not be negligent. May we not 
Ignore the nudges of your mercy that call us to pray. Father, keep us faithful in praying for one another, encouraging one another. But Father, I pray for those of our church family who might be feeling alone and desperate. May they know, Lord, your grace by coming to you through Jesus Christ. Father, keep us in your word that we may walk in trust. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.